what we do here is go back, 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 back. Oh, Randy! And welcome into episode 15 of the Two and a Half Marks podcast. I am your host, David Statman, and as always, I am joined by my good friends, Jake Long and Angelo Inglisa, as we review and remember a random WWE Network pay-per-view every week. This week, we've got Hell in a Cell 2018. We've got a bunch of overbooked nonsense to, to just go through and, and talk about some good matches, some people we haven't really gotten the chance to to talk about so far on this podcast. How you doing, boys? If I had uh, to fiddle with OBS one more time, I was losing my mind. Yes. Thank what God. time What time did we get on? Like 7.30? 7.30, and it took me 30 minutes to figure out what the hell was going on with my audio system. Because as we all know, I am not a professional at this, and it was driving me nuts. Angela, would you rather continue to mess with OBS or watch another 25-minute overbooked madness? Shit. Is death an option? (laughs) Well, you watch enough of these and it probably comes. Listen, I watched all 25 minutes of the Braun Strowman, Roman Reigns main event when it happened, right? And it made me mad then. Pretty sure we all did. And then... Yeah, I think we all watched. I think we probably watched it together. I remember watching it with people. Probably was, you guys. I, I was I was over, I'm sure. Pretty sure I was yeah. over. And you know, I watched the whole thing when it happened. It made me mad then. And then I watched it again early this morning. <laughs> and two years later, boys, it still made me mad. <laughs> like a little I was I was a little bit peeved this morning, and it kind of affected the rest of my day. But now I'm here. And I'm, I'm here for the cathartic experience of hashing it out and talking about it and bitching about it to my boys. And remembering the guys that go along with it. Yes. Remembering guys that we still see today. So <laughs> let's how let's 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 get to that. Let's remember some guys. Hell in a cell 2018. It is September 16th, 2018. We are at the AT&T Center in San Antonio, Texas, hometown of the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels, who I wish was on the show, but he's not. We've got 15,216 people in the building, and we are starting out with a Hell in a Cell match. It is a red Hell in a Cell cage. The physical cage itself is red, which just, just leading this off here, I mean, this is one of two Hell in a Cell matches on the card, and I just, you know, the colored cell, I detest it. I think it looks just garish and distracting. I can't imagine being somebody in the stadium, in the arena, trying to watch a match through that red cage and actually, like, trying to see what's going on. Just a, an absolute disaster. It's not even a great contrast color. Like, it's one thing if you're trying to make it so that the cage is less noticeable for the action. But, like, red is not, like, a color you would use to, you know, have that contrast. I mean, it looks a little cool, but watching the matches and the camera angles that they were using, it sucks. But, guys, it's hell. It's red. Just like hell. Can we kick Jake's Zoom call? 
Do we have confirmation it, that hell is actually red, though? Like, it, it could be black, just like the blackness of, of the night. Oh, you know? It depends on what you think. Hell I mean. is like what? Is, I mean, okay, like, I mean, hell is like, what, is it underground? I mean, it's probably pretty dark down there. But and I feel like... I imagine it's pretty dark underground. If you, like, dig like a hole, you go down there. I feel like it depends on your interpretation. And some did y'all notice? Did y'all notice the super ugly, like, uh, opening skull thing, though? That, that Every time. <laughs> <laughs> I like, was... man, you guys are so cool and edgy. Look yeah. at this graphic. <laughs> I was like, this is very 2002 right here. <laughs> not in a good way. Not but, in a good way. But we're starting off with the gigantic red cell. And inside the cell, Randy Orton and Jeff Hardy, I do not remember this angle. I don't remember why this happened. I don't remember why Randy Orton and Jeff Hardy I were do. feuding. I feel like every every Randy Orton feud over the last five or so years have been mostly the same. But Angelo, you apparently remember this angle? I don't remember this because angle. Because the same angle it always is. It's Randy Orton wanting to exterminate the legend of somebody else, and this time it was Jeff Hardy. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And it's the same it's the same thing that like Randy Orton always does, where like he shows up at the end of, of the other guy's matches, RKO's him, and then it's done. Okay. He's doing that. So that's the angle. It's the same <laughs> as all the other angles. So uh, we got Randy Orton. We got Jeff Hardy. This is uh, post, obviously, the Hardy Boys returned to WWE in 2016 or 17. And post them kind of half-assedly doing the broken Matt Hardy gimmick. Matt got injured. Uh-uh, and then Jeff... woken Matt Hardy. Yes, <laughs> for copyright reasons, trademark reasons, it's woken Matt Hardy. Um, and Jeff, after Matt got injured, was out for a long time. He was doing this thing where he had kind of the creepy face paint, and it actually looked pretty cool. But this is the version of Jeff Hardy we're at. And we are... In Hell in a Cell, and they have a, a solid match that goes on for a really, really long time. Um, it's a bit slower paced, but the crowd, I thought, got into it at the end. Um, they do a bunch of cell spots at the beginning. Jeff produces a table. He kicks it into Randy's ribs. He hits him in the ribs with a ladder. They're doing a bunch of weapon stuff. Orton hits him with a chair. Jeff does uh, the poetry in motion off a chair into Randy, who is stood up against the side of the cell. That was pretty cool. Um, they get back in the ring. Randy hits a superplex. Jeff, hit, the, the whole middle section of this match, is them kind of just doing moves to each other. Uh, Jeff does the whisper and the wind to the back of Randy's head off the top rope. Uh, on the outside, Randy suplexes him forward into an upside-down ladder that is turned into a V-shape, which probably didn't feel good. He hits Jeff with a chair a bunch of times. He takes off Jeff's uh, studded belt, which he most likely bought from Hot Topic, and he whips him with it a bunch of times. He sandwiches Jeff inside a ladder, and he stomps on it. And this, we end up going to the one spot I really remember from this match, and I think probably if people remember anything from this match, it's this spot. Yep. Uh, yep. Jeff has got the, you know, he's got ear gauges, and, you know, his, his gauges are out, so he's got that floppy earlobe. So Randy just starts pulling at the earlobe. This is real, like, just David Cronenberg body horror type shit. Like, he starts pulling at the earlobe and, you know, just tugging at it. He takes a, he somehow produces a screwdriver. I don't know where he got a screwdriver. 
He sticks the screwdriver through his ear and is pulling at it and twisting it. Everybody watching it, including myself, is just going, no, at the same time. Because it really, like, you know, it just it's one of those things that hurts you deeply to watch. Uh, and it grosses you out. Jeff escapes by kicking him in the nuts. Uh, he attacks him with the belt. He hits him with the chair. He goes for the, uh, the swanton, but Randy, you know, crotches him on the top rope. Randy's back is all bloody from the belt shots, and he somehow seems to have a chunk of flesh kind of taken out of his thigh somehow. I don't know how that happened. Um, but, you know, Randy counters the R- – Jeff counters the RKO into the twist of fate, and then he lands the swan. He puts a chair on Randy's body and then hits the swanton onto the chair, and Randy kicks out. So – this is the moment when that happens that you know. Sometimes in matches there are spots where people kick out and you know in that moment that that person is not going to win. That is the moment where you know that Jeff Hardy's not going to win this match. When he hits the twist of fate, hits the wonton onto a chair, and Randy kicks out, it's over. Jeff has no more moves. He has exhausted <laughs> all of the Jeff Hardy moves and there is nowhere else he can go. So Randy kicks out and then uh, he hits another twist of fate. Jeff, and this is the big spot, this is the finishing spot of the match, Jeff rolls Randy onto a table. He gets on a couple ladders and climbs up to the top of the cell. He is hanging from the ceiling beams of the cell. And he tries to kind of swing off the cell like a monkey and do a splash onto Randy through the chair, Randy, or through the table. Randy rolls out of the way. Jeff crashes through the, uh, the table from the top of the cell. Cool visual. Randy pins him right after this to win the match. 24 minutes, 52 seconds. The first match, or yeah, 24 minutes, 50 seconds. One of the longest matches of the night. Randy Orton wins, and then afterwards they uh, they take Jeff out on a stretcher to very big chance, a uh, very very big hearty chance from the crowd. Okay, so David talked about be, uh, uh, getting a feeling cathartic whenever he <clears throat> talks about these, these things to get it off of his chest. Well, if I could channel CM Punk, I have a few things that I need to get off my chest. You are such right. a bark, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you understand. So, all right, this match didn't need hell in a cell and other matches on this card needed it more. That being said, they, they captured the brutality, the violence of the match. I get it. That part's good, but this match didn't need it. The Raw before this, Jeff hits like a swanton from the balcony, which I didn't remember, but I went back and watched. Like, it's cool. And that kind of, to me, that means it should have been like Falls Count Anywhere, Street Fight, something like that. It didn't need like a, these guys can only be contained in the cell. No, it should have been like, these guys need to just go wherever they want and like beat the hell out of each other. Absolutely. Addition- but I mean, oh, you're gonna- no, no, go for it. Well, the second thing I was going to say is I hate the red cell. It looks bad. That's all. That's the only other thing I just. <laughs> well, no, I was I was going to speak to your first one because like we've talked about this before. This is not the first Hell in a Cell pay per view that we've done. We did 2012, what a few months ago. Yeah. Equally bad. Um, and it's. I mean, I'm not going to belabor this point too much because I made it. If you go and listen to that podcast, that episode of the podcast. I mean. The idea of having Hell in a Cell as a yearly pay-per-view is bad. ridiculous. It's bad. I mean, you end up having matches and feuds that are not really fitting of Hell in a Cell as this huge, you know, Hell in a Cell is supposed to be this huge, 
you know, mega feud ender for these great blood feuds like Triple H and Shawn Michaels or, you know, Undertaker and Mankind, like these epic showdowns. And then it becomes like, well, we got this feud going on at this time of the year, so they'll be in hell himself. But, like, don't you think AJ Joe could have made sense? I, I was going to say that. It absolutely could have made sense for yeah. Hell in a Cell. Because that, that was, like, a very intense and personal feud. Absolutely. The they booked it. This but. was not a personal feud. This was just Randy being, like, pissed off. And it just so happened to be Jeff Hardy he was pissed off at. I agree with that, too. Like, AJ Samojo, that was such a personal feud, the way they booked it up. And having the Hell in a Cell, which is kind of, like, what the cell is made for makes a lot more sense than Orin Hardy, especially because you knew the Orin Hardy spot was going to be Orin going for the ear because he had been doing that for the past two weeks on SmackDown. Like, mm-hmm. Orin had been alluding to that. That was the whole entire thing. You saw him pulling on it in episodes of SmackDown and then seeing what he does here. It's real. It's truly stomach-churning. And you know what? I'm not opposed to doing stuff like that in the match, but at the same time, you didn't need a Hell in a Cell match to do that. You could have done that in right. a street fight. You could have done Absolutely. that in the crowd. Imagine the crowd seeing that up close and personal, how much more of a reaction you could get from there. Outside uh, of the ending, what did the Hell in a Cell gimmick add to this match? Jeff Hardy, Other than the finish. Jeff Hardy got the fall from the cell, of course. Because I mean, yeah, it's, I, it, it's, it's good for like... Okay, Jeff Hardy had an idea for a cool spot on the cell. So yeah, we'll just do exactly. the match in the cell, and then okay, and he'll do the spot. Absolutely. But it's know? not a cool spot, though. I hate yeah. I hate spots like that, because they do it in Elimination Chamber, too, because you had John Morrison. I thought it was kind of cool. John Morrison. I, mean, I liked it, but... I don't like those, because it's just like, you're just falling. It, that's the entire thing. You're climbing up, climbing up, and then you're falling. So, like, John Morrison did that in Elimination Chamber. I'm pretty sure one of the members of the Lucha House Party did at Elimination Chamber as well. It's just, it's not a move. You're just falling on the guys. I will, you know what, Angelo? I, I will, I will. for one of the few times, I'll agree with you. Because Jeff didn't do a move. He just kind of, like, belly flopped you know. onto the table. Listen, <laughs> listen, I have played enough Assassin's Creed games that the idea of climbing up a building and then like falling off it and then landing on someone and killing them is cool as shit. <laughs> I don't care what you say. Now, quick question for you guys. Cause I kind of thought about this during this match. Uh, Cause I use a lot of weapons. Are you guys a chair guy, a tables guy or a ladder guy? What's your go-to tables weapon? guy? Are you kidding tables, me? Tables. tables. When have you ever seen someone go through a table and go like what have you ever seen that no, I, and gone man that was not cool i i really could have done without that person going through the table you ever hear we want ladders no. <laughs> no. but do yeah. you also notice that there aren't a lot of tables guys in the wwe right now it's mostly guys that like to use the steel chairs or ladders not a lot of tables guys and we need to ha- we need a new dudley boys man oh it's man. a lost art but also shut up Corey graves he was annoying throughout <laughs> this entire match the does not know to shut up all of the announcing, like like modern era WWE uh, commentating, is generally really bad. But I feel like it is at its worst in Hell in a Cell because they're always like, you know, I, I, I you know, I think one of like the cardinal rules of storytelling is show don't tell. If Hell in a Cell is supposed to be this incredible brutal match, show us. But instead, they use yeah. like nine nine times out of ten, it is. Guys are having a match in a cage, and, you know, we've seen a million cage matches. It is wrestling. They're hitting each other with chairs. Like, okay, we've, it's wrestling. We've seen people hit each other with chairs. But the whole time, the announcers are going, 
We are inside the demonic structure known as Hell in a Cell. It will change your life. The unrelenting brutality of this mat. And it's just shut up, dude. Let me just watch this. Stop telling me how brutal this is. I have more notes on that in the uh, the tag team match here in a little bit. That, that's whenever I'll, I'll get my spiel about the commentating. If you really want to get fucked up during a Hell in a Cell pay-per-view, take a <laughs> shot anytime one of the announcers says the word structure. <laughs> oh my gosh, I should have counted. I also have a better spot than what the one Jeff Hardy did. Do that spot on the outside of the ring. Have him climb the ladder and then climb up the side of the cage and then do some kind of drop onto him onto the table. Shane McMahon. Did Shane yeah. McMahon do that already? Uh, he's tried twice to fall off of it to, to not, kill. But not, no, not from on the outside of the cage, inside the cage. Oh, oh. So, like, you're on the, uh, I guess, the a- not the apron, because it's not, it's not the hardest part of the ring, because it's like not the, the ring. side of the cage? The, the side floor. I'm trying to picture this right the now. Inside of the so cage. Like like the, you're in the inside, inside of the cage, the, cage, the so side floor. climbing up the side of the cage like Spider-Man, yeah. and then you're yes. jumping off the yeah. side of the cage? Yes, yeah. you're jumping off the side of the cage onto the ladder, rather than, okay. you're ha- rather than hanging from above, because I think hanging from above looks really dumb. I, I actually do agree with you, Angelo, on that. I, I think like like you climb up the inside and then like throw yourself off for like a back elbow drop or something like that. Yep. I think that can be cool. Otherwise, you just like kind of flop through the air. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm with, I'm with him. Okay. Well, Angelo, I had a what? good idea. <laughs> <laughs> don't get used to it. Why don't Why don't you uh, report like try that and report back and we'll see how it works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But yeah, uh, Randy Orton, Jeff Hardy. It lasted a long time. There were a couple cool spots. I didn't and we time. move on. I thought it was fine. You know, I thought it was fine. We move on. So we, we the last few episodes, I feel like especially, we've had a lot of conversations about women's wrestling, the history of women's wrestling in WWE, and really how, especially in the Attitude Era, but really up through the late 2000s, early 2010s, the women were basically treated with no respect whatsoever. This has been, this, this is nice this next match to kind of actually finally watch a women's match where it, they actually just kind of let two good wrestlers have a wrestling match and they kind of play it just straight up and they have a good match. And it is two of the very best. It is Charlotte Flair defending her WWE SmackDown Women's Championship against Becky Lynch, who is at the outset of the kind of aborted heel turn, turned major push that got her mega over as one of the biggest stars in the company, if not the biggest star in the company for a while. Uh, So Charlotte is defending the title against Becky. And this is a good match. It's just a really good wrestling match. They start off with some, some good mat wrestling early, you know, really just, I thought good coherent story of this match. Both of these women are teasing their submissions and going for their submissions. Charlotte for the, the the figure eight leg lock and uh, Becky with the arm bar. So you've got Becky trying to work over the arm, Charlotte trying to work over the leg. Becky, even though I guess she was technically supposed to be the heel, definitely much, much more popular than Charlotte. The, the, the crowd is very much behind Becky. Um, and I think much more into this match than they were at any point throughout the, the Orton-Jeff Hardy match. Uh, Charlotte... After a bunch of mat wrestling, hits a backdrop suplex, hits a big boot, goes for the moonsault, misses. 
Becky rolls her into an arm bar, turns it into a triangle choke, but then Charlotte lifts her up and slams her with a sit-out powerbomb. I thought that looked awesome. Um, they do the, the yay-boo spot where they're hitting each other. Uh, Charlotte getting the boos, Becky getting the yays. Uh, Becky hits a hammerlock DDT for a two-count, goes for a, a missile drop kick, which gets turned into a Boston Crab. Charlotte rolls her up. Becky spins her into the, the arm bar, but she's able to get under the ropes and, and, and break the hold. Then Charlotte goes for a spear, hits the spear, but Becky rolls through into a cradle and pins her to win the title, 13 minutes and 49 seconds, and the crowd gives a nice, real big pop for Becky finally winning the title. I mean, this was a long chase for Becky to finally go over in this way over Charlotte. And nice match, nice payoff. Crowd was very happy. I was very happy, I remember mm-hmm. at the time. It was great because I think we all, when we were watching that triple threat match at SummerSlam, because we watched SummerSlam together too, when it was Becky versus Charlotte versus Carmella, and having Flair win, I think we all just kind of groaned at that. So seeing Becky go over here was great because she really did, like, she was the main draw of the company for the past two years, and I would say she was a great face of the company. I mean, she's probably one of the best wrestlers of this decade. Uh, And when you think about the 2010s, the different era that WWE is in, Charlotte Flair, another great one. Um, she always has that. I always notice this weird juxtaposition fans have with her because she is great in the ring. She's great at telling a story. She plays her character perfectly. But at the same time, she can't ever really be a true face because her dad's Ric Flair. So she has that like built-in handout slash like entitlement feel to her, even when she yeah. is like a genuine face. I think she also sort of gets booked like in a female roman reigns slash cena type yeah way yeah. because Absolutely. obviously like vince loves her and she is someone who like ticks all the boxes for like a star yep. but they they kind of book her as that like or like i think they see her as like that baby face but she is like she's rick flair's daughter she is not like an underdog or any in any way because she's like <laughs> she's like six foot tall fucking goddess who is like just genetically superior to all of us (laughs) and kind of carries herself like in a naturally kind of haughty way. Yeah. So like she is much better as sort of like an uppity heel, but like Vince wants good. Yeah. Vince wants her to be this like big baby face. I just don't think it's her natural, like, like, in this feud, she's supposed to be the babyface, and Becky, who has been beloved by the fans for years, <laughs> who are begging that, like, who've been begging WWE to push Becky for like three years. Becky is supposed to be the heel here, and the fans are like, "No, we're we're not gonna we're we're not gonna cheer Charlotte. We're gonna cheer Becky. Like, why would we cheer Charlotte here? Like, we hate Charlotte Flair because she checks all of the boxes, and it's like it sucks for her because she can never truly be a face, but at the same time, like." It's like the cost you pay to have all those boxes checked. Yeah. It's like the fans would never like cheer John Cena over CM Punk because there is no way that 99% of us could ever be John Cena because he is just genetically and physically superior (laughs) to us. But we like, we could, we could be CM Punk who is just kind of a skinny fat dude in a t-shirt, you know, like (laughs) we could never be Charlotte Flair. Maybe we could be Becky Lynch, but we could never, ever be Charlotte Flair. And so that is why we can't, 
you know, she will never resonate as a baby face because she is inaccessible to us. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love Charlotte Flair as a wrestler because I think she's really, really good. She's I think she's great. had nominal matches with like Sasha and, and all those girls. Great wrestler. But if you watched uh, SummerSlam 2018, you fell in love with Becky Lynch because you saw that angle and you saw Lynch lose to Flair, who's supposed to be your friend. And then she tries to like congratulate her, but you don't really care about that because you're mad Becky lost. And then Becky turns on her and everybody cheered the hell out of it at the time. Everybody loved it. And that's because something- they were they were finally getting the personality that they wanted. And that's something I've noticed too with like the women's division since I've gotten back into wrestling. It just feels like that storytelling is so much more consistent than on the men's side. Now, there are some good angles that they set up in the men's. Like, I think what they're doing with Drew McIntyre right now has been really good, uh, the build with Randy Orton. Uh, But it just feels like there's a lot of inconsistencies. Like, look at, for another recent example, the Jeff Hardy-Sheamus angle. Just, there's some really trash things that they do, and it just doesn't really resonate. Whereas with this women's division, like, again, I'm going to use current examples because I've been keeping up with the Raw and SmackDown. Uh... Bailey two belts, uh, Bailey dough straps, and uh, two belts banks. <laughs> like it's the two woman power trip, but it's really good because guess what? They've been great on the mic. The story that they've been telling has been really interesting to follow and seeing. All right, so how is this going to come together? How is this going to fall apart? Because for the longest time we were like, okay, Sasha's never going to claim her second title, so eventually she'll have to challenge Bailey. But then she goes out and gets the Raw title, which was unexpected, and it's really worked very well. And then on the men's side, it's just really hard to keep those stories continuous and meaningful in a way. I'm not sure what the cause of that is, but the oversaturation. W- I guess so because the women's division has I always felt like has been really good when they get that time to shine. Their their mania their their mania match whenever it's with uh, Rousey. No, no, I'm just saying whenever oh. like the, the payoff from all of this. Is gonna be great whenever it's uh, it's oh Bailey Banks, Asha. yeah, it's gonna be good. Match. Oh my god, but like <laughs> even like going back to uh, Rousey versus uh, Lynch versus Flair, that was a hell of a match and it had a hell of a build. Like I remember uh, Rousey and Fl- Lynch going back and forth about and Rousey making a comment about uh, Becky having penis envy because of the disarmor and how it looks. <laughs> I thought that was funny. It was really funny, but guess what? <laughs> I just, again, it just feels like they do a better job telling the stories in the women's division than they do the men's side right now. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't really know why that is. I think, like, my first instinct is that Vince isn't as involved. Vince, I mean, Vince and everything, like, all of them, but especially Vince, because at the top it's, it's Vince, is constantly overthinking everything and constantly changing his mind about everything. And that leads to stuff being incoherent and just completely schizophrenic. But my thought is maybe, you know, there has been increased emphasis of the women's division, the women's wrestlers, and that's a good thing. But like, it could be that, like, and again, this is like my first instinct, is that he's not as invested in it. Like he, like he doesn't care about it quite as much as he does like booking the WWE champion or anything. So he kind of like lets it be a little bit more and doesn't overthink it as much. I could see him loving, letting Stephanie work on it a lot more. With, uh, maybe have some Triple H start in there yeah. with him focusing more so on like the main card, especially on like the Raw or the top of the yeah. card. And that would, you know, results in maybe a little more continuity and things making a little more sense. I don't know if that's true. I'm just kind of pulling this out of my ass, but that's like sort of my first thought when, as far as that comes. I mean, Vince, Vince is a crazy old man 
who does stuff on the fly. And like, you can kind of tell that at least the good, and you can say this for a lot of things, but the good storylines that they go through are not made by a single demented mind nowadays. So they're going through more checks or they're going through people who actually know what they're doing, I guess. Um, so yeah, just, just to echo David's point about it. Yeah. One last thing too, with the genuine pop we get from Becky Lynch, I I can't get this out of my head throughout the rest of the card. It becomes very obvious when they're piping in noise for this pay-per-view. No, well, we'll we'll talk about Roman and Braun later on. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, I mean, for sure. Um, it is, especially when like, we're watching this two years later on the WWE Network. Like, they have the opportunity to kind of dub over some stuff. I mean, you can even go back to, I think, was it the, Jake, was it the 91 or 92 Royal Rumble where uh, Hogan pulled Sid out of the ring, which was a total heel move, and everyone booed him at the time for doing it, but if you watch it back now on the network, they have overdubbed, like, huge cheers for it because it's Hogan and he's supposed to be the babyface. I can't remember 92, but I don't know that for a fact. Might have been two, but, like, this is the kind of stuff they do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Moving on. We uh, so I, again, I thought this was a really good, solid wrestling match between two really, really good wrestlers. Moving on, we have reviewed a bunch of matches so far from a bunch of different places and a bunch of different time periods. This is one of my favorite matches that we have watched the whole time we've been doing this podcast. I thought this was a banger. WWE Raw Tag Team Championship, the team of Dolph Ziggler and Drew McIntyre defending against the former Shield boys, Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose. My boy. Uh, Before (laughs) this, I I do have to mention there was a uh, funny segment uh, with the New Day. They had just beaten Rusev Day. Remember them? R.I.P. R.I.P. I still have a happy Rusev Day (laughs) t-shirt, and I am not happy with my life. One of my students last year had a happy Lana Day, because her name was Lana. Oh my gosh. I don't know why. Uh, Okay, if if her name was Lana, then I get that. That's cool. If her name is literally Lana, I get that. Yes. But um, me as an owner of a happy Rusev Day t-shirt, which I can no longer wear, uh, you know, it makes me very sad to remember that they existed. Um... They New Day beat Rusev Day in the pre-show match, and they're just celebrating backstage. They bring in a uh, silent guy wearing a tuxedo t-shirt named uh, Bootyworth, who <laughs> brings them champagne to celebrate. Uh, Kofi is uh, doing like the Dave Chappelle white newscaster uh, gimmick with a really squeaky voice and is interviewing them. And uh, they end up pouring a bunch of pancakes onto Bootyworth and shoving pancakes into his mouth. This was hysterical. Yes. Big E is one of the funniest men in the history of wrestling. Everything he does is just naturally hilarious. And then Corey Graves has a funny line saying, of all the things I've seen, that was the most recent. Yes. Which is a which is which is one that he he pulled out that uh that line again at the women's Royal Rumble like a year or two late, I think a year later, when Alicia Fox came out and was doing this insane dance. Yeah. And like he hits that line at that exact time. And all of us in the room just died when he said it because it was perfect time. Because we I remember that line all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. We got a match. It is Rollins and Ambrose versus Dolph and Drew. This was after Dean came back from the triceps injury and came back, he was out for a long time. 
comes back as Seth's backup in his feud with uh, Dolph Ziggler because Ziggler had Drew as kind of his muscle, and Seth brings back Dean Ambrose as his muscle, and Dean looked just crazy jacked. I mean, the guy, he was down in, you know, Birmingham rehabbing. I guess he must have been on some of that, like, Vitor Belfort-style uh, testosterone replacement. He was looking crazy. Um, so they start out. Uh, they beat up Dean for a bit. They, he tags in Seth. He hits a, spling, a sling blade. He hits a, a spinning back kick. But then Dolph hits a pendulum DDT for a two count. And then they beat him on Seth some more. Dolph puts Seth in a sleeper hold. Drew hits the reverse Alabama slam, which is like the move I would least want to take ever is the reverse Alabama slam. Maybe even more than the regular Alabama slam. <laughs> they both seem pretty bad to me, but he hits the reverse Alabama slam. They do the spot where uh, the baby faces try to make the tag, but the ref doesn't see it. So they have to go back and he makes them, you know, he doesn't allow the tag. So they double team Seth and he beats them up some more and they beat him up some more. And they beat him up some more. And finally, after long last, after a bunch of teases, Dean gets the hot tag, and he runs wild for a bit. Finally, Drew hits a nasty belly-to-belly into the corner. Seth does a dive to the outside onto both Dolph and Drew, but they catch him, and while they're holding him up, Dean does a dive onto everybody. Everybody goes down. Uh, the crowd starts to get really, really hot because this the, the action gets really fast and you get a bunch of moves. Uh, Seth, cat, like, Dolph tries to hit the pendulum DT again, catches him. Seth catches him, hits a Falcon Arrow. I thought this was a great spot. No one kicks out of the Falcon count. Arrow. <laughs> oh, he did, he did the deal. Nobody kicks out of the Falcon Arrow. Uh, Everybody kicks out of the Falcon Arrow. Dolph Ziggler kicks out of the Falcon Arrow. <laughs> he, he teases the, uh, Seth teases the curb stop, but he gets out of the way. He teases, uh, uh, Dolph teases the Famouser, but Seth catches him out of midair, hits the buckle bomb, goes for the pin. Drew breaks it up. A bunch of pinning combinations really quick. Dolph hits a zigzag out of nowhere for a two count. Hits a, uh, Seth hits a super kick into a roll-up for a two count. Seth hits a frog splash to Dolph's back, and Drew ends up kicking out at two. Seth misses a piscata to the outside. Drew comes in, hits a diving clothesline on Dean, and then immediately hits a kip-up, which for a guy that size just looked awesome because I am half of Drew's size, and I struggle to do a kip-up. And so to see a dude like that do that, really cool. They uh, tease the Doomsday device, but Dean fights out, tags in Seth. This is the finish of the match. I thought this looked awesome at the time. I remember it really well, and it still looks really cool. Seth hits a superplex on Adolph Ziggler off the top rope. And he lands the move. He rolls through and goes for another Falcon Arrow. But as he brings him up to hit the Falcon Arrow... Drew zips back into the ring, hits him with a Claymore dropkick as he's hitting the move. And Drew lands on him for the pin. And in 22 minutes, 56 seconds, Dolph Ziggler and Drew McIntyre retain the tag team championships. Angelo, could you tell that David loved this match? I could definitely tell that David loved this match. This match absolutely (laughs) bangs. There's only... I I, I thought it was really good. And I, I have in my notes that it went too long I think it, but I think it only went like five minutes too long. I think you could have made this match 20 minutes and it would have still been phenomenal because the first 10 are kind of nothing minutes to me, but you know, whatever. 
this is to me is where the modern commentating lost me because they kept, they keep talking about like these teams are just so good. Uh, and they keep being like their motivations, uh, the war, the dogs of war or whatever they call them want to shake up the status quo on raw. Like, Oh my God, I got so sick of them trying to like put these guys over. Just let them wrestle, call the moves. Yeah. And, and, and you know what they say about Vince when it comes to like, the commentators calling moves. He's like, people don't know what the moves are called. Yeah. I, I hate it's like and it, like. Meanwhile, everybody loves Excalibur on AEW, and he yells all the moves all the time. He says every move like, because it's awesome. Yeah, because <laughs> all these moves are cool. And they have cool names, and it's cool to hear people yell them really loud and excitedly. There's, Absolutely, the best guy they have on commentary right now. Like, I, I really like their Raw team right now with like Tom Phillips, Samoa Joe, and Byron Saxon. Saxon can be a little bit too much sometimes, but I think for the most part, it's like with Phillips and Joe, and then you have Saxon there as a really cheesy kind of third guy, yeah. it, it, it works. And I don't think they yeah. go over the top with it. I never really have a problem with them. They're kind of in the background, but they don't distract from the match. But you, have you Corey, shouldn't notice the commentators. You shouldn't, absolutely. Yeah. Because you I have like... Corey Graves yelling his head off. Yes. I like the Phillips Saxton Joe combo because they remind me of us. I'm Tom <laughs> Phillips because I'm, you know, I'm the play by play guy. I'm I'm yeah. hosting, you know. Definitely. Jake is Joe because he's the cob he's like the color guy, but he kind of talks a lot of shit. And yeah, I'm kind of a heel. I'm like a low key heel. Yeah. And Angelo and Byron <laughs> Saxton have the exact same energy in every way. <laughs> Angelo's finishing move would absolutely be Saxonation. Oh, it's the Saxonation, a hundred percent. I need to look up what that. Th- I need to look up oh what that is. Oh my god! Please do. Uh, oh man, there's o- there's only one problem I have with this matchup besides the commentary team, and it, it, it's just because it felt like it was four singles guys going for the Raw Tag Team Championships. I really don't think you need. I, when th- that's the whole thing with WWE. I hate the fact that they don't have like a defined tag team division, uh, like. You right now with like Andra like Andrade and Garza, they've been tagging for a while, sure it's fine. But for this match, like it never felt like the story worked as like the dogs of war and you knew that they were just reuniting the shield because they wanted to have the shield in Australia for one last match. All that fun shit. And it, that's the only bad part for it. Other than that, like it is a great match. Uh, I'm wearing my John Moxley T-shirt, formerly known as Dean Ambrose, because and, and I think the one of the reasons why I was really draw like drawn on his comeback is because he has a unique style that isn't really WWE. He's more frantic, uh, rough, dirty than these nuanced ways. Because if you compare him to Seth Rollins, like one of the things I wrote down for this match is like some of the moves that Seth has in his arsenal. Seth has the frog splash, a finisher at one point, the pedigree, a finisher, the super kick, finisher, the falcon arrow, no one kicks out of the falcon arrow, and the stomp. The guy has like all the glitzy glam moves that are done in today's wrestling. And it's just like, I'm not sure what that says about Seth. I'm not sure what that says about the WWE with Seth being like one of their top guys. But it feels like he's got too much big moves. That's uh, what actually I was going to say something about that too. I don't like the fact that he doesn't win with the superplex Falcon Arrow because that move has such is such higher impact than some moves that do finish matches. Like like you can't tell me that that move doesn't look more brutal than I don't know like the zigzag. Okay. 
and it doesn't finish matches. I, I think that there's like a like a slight disconnect. But I mean, the stop is a really cool move too. I think that is a yeah. great finisher. But like going into like what you've said before about half finishers, having the superplex Falcon Arrow be his finisher and just the regular Falcon Arrow be like that half finisher, I think that works out great Absolutely. too. I think I think that's why we need to see Seth in a New Japan ring where guys can sometimes win moves, like or like win matches with other moves unless it's a big match and then they got to hit their finish finish but but this match does do a lot of small things right between like dean having the ref distracted because he got the tag in and then the heels utilizing that as a point to beat up on seth like a lot of the small things even the finish with that uh beautiful claymore while he's trying to set up the falcon arrow picture perfect it does a lot of small things again the only issue i have is that it's four singles competitors fighting over the tag team championships. I think that the story that they were trying to tell didn't need the tag championship. I just, I, I can't, I can't really get on board with the, oh, it's four singles competitor because it's Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose who were members of the shield, which is like one of the best like no, teams in the last 20 years of WWE. You're, you're right. It's not like they're two random guys who were just kind of put together. And the previous year they were in a very, very over, storyline which even got my girlfriend to care about wwe because it was so well booked and so well done of them overcoming their differences and coming back together to team and become tag team but they already told that story before okay so why can't they then be a tag team later because you have okay well we did it so now you guys you're singles guys again Go! No, no, come on, man. They're, Get out of here. They, at the time, on, at the time, they're extremely two, Joe Biden voice. Come on, man. <laughs> at the like, time, they're two of the two of the biggest stars, single stars, on the entire promotion. But so. also at the same time, they were building up towards the big Shield reunion. That's but what they that's, were doing to get the team back together. And then Dean gets injured. Dean had been out for like nine months. He hadn't been out doing single stuff no, you're and right. going for the Intercontinental title or whatever the hell he would be doing. He was on the shelf. So then he goes back and teams with his boy, who he had been teaming with because they are a tag team. I don't know. I feel like this is just a a, a, a ratings grab just to get the shield back. That, that That's my thing. Well, that's what the whole thing was to start with, but that doesn't mean it's bad. Eh. I, like I said, it wasn't a bad match. I just didn't like the story. I loved the match. I thought it was great. I thought it was just like, you know, picture perfect, you know, great formula tag team wrestling. You know, the heels got the heat and then the baby faces came back and they hit a bunch of moves and they went real fast and the crowd loved it. And they were going crazy. And then you get a really cool inventive finish, very unique finish, original finish featuring one of my favorite finishers in pro wrestling, the Claymore kick, which always <laughs> is sweet as hell and looks like it kills just I one, love it. Just one point out. Drew McIntyre. When is Drew McIntyre? Second, like, comeback Drew McIntyre. Like, second run. I was say. <laughs> when has a Drew McIntyre match not delivered? You remember the next big thing, Drew McIntyre? <laughs> all said, hey, all she had to do was grow facial hair. Yeah, and also put on 100 pounds of pure muscle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just one point. I, no, man. I mean, Drew McIntyre is one of my very, very top guys going right now. Because I just feel like a he's he he looks and just has the aura of a badass. Absolutely, he is you know he's on Raw and Raw sucks. It's tough for me to like get invested in anything on Raw. But Drew is cutting these killer promos all the time, and every time he has a match, it delivers. Is I mean, he the guy Scottish? is money? Pretty sure he's Scottish. 
Yeah, he's Scottish. He's okay. he's is Scottish. Yeah. I will say he's like the perfect baby fit, modern baby face in terms of just like a guy who, again, he kind of like Charlotte Thayer. He checks off all the boxes, but it's easy to root for him because he's just such a badass. Yeah, yeah. He like there. You know, you can you can. Not that it's like a. Not that it's like really a good comparison because they're different guys, and obviously, like it's a stretch, but like. You root for him like in the way that like you would root for say Stone Cold, and again, that's not like a good like that's not like a, a one for one comparison, but like obviously you don't relate to Stone Cold, but you think he's a cool badass and you mm-hmm. want to root for him. I feel like Drew's sort of the same way. So we're at forty four minutes now uh, on this Hell in a Cell card. We would be just be finishing up the Randy Orton Jeff Hardy match. Yeah, we are we are pacing ourselves similar to this show that went on forever. Three and a half hours for seven matches. So let's actually keep moving a little bit. Next up, this is a feud that I loved at the time. And I don't don't know if everybody loved it, but I loved it. I think everyone here loved it. Everyone here loved it. Oh, Wendy! AJ Styles and Samoa Joe for the WWE Championship. This was the feud where, of course, Samoa Joe... Uh, I guess it kind of boiled down to Samoa Joe tried to steal AJ Styles' wife and kids from him. <laughs> That's kind of what it boils down to. And it sounds dumb, and it kind of was. But it worked, because th- there's nobody else who could have pulled this off the way Samoa Joe pulls it off, because he is one of just the best. And they have one of my favorite pre-match promos for this match ever in the history of WWE. And one of the very few that I... Like, go back and really specifically remember. Uh, it is him doing an evil, like, rhyming children's book called Night Night, AJ, by Samoa Joe, which ends with him, like, holding up the book, and it's a picture of him holding the WWE Championship with AJ Styles' wife and daughter standing happily at his side, congratulating him and smiling. <laughs> Perfect. Again, Samoa Joe is maybe the only guy who can make this actually work, but it works because he is just Samoa Joe, one of the truly revolutionary talents in pro wrestling over the last 20, 25 years. Um, so we get in this match. Um, one thing I wanted to point out that I really liked, uh, there is a guy on the entranceway holding an eight and a third chance of winning sign when Samoa <laughs> Joe walks out, a reference to the Steiner math promo, the greatest promo in the history of pro wrestling from TNA. Um, but they start out and AJ comes after him hot because, you know, Samoa Joe's been making this real personal about his family. He goes after him hot. AJ tries to springboard to the outside, but Joe catches him in midair with a knee. It was really cool. Then he boots him, tosses him into the steps. And a lot of this match is Joe beating on AJ. He does a diving elbow through the middle rope. He wears him down in the ring. AJ does his big comeback, hits a running forearm, Hits the, the moonsault reverse DDT out of the corner for a, a, a two count. He goes for a springboard moonsault, but uh, Joe gets the knees up and then hits a power bomb, turns it into a Boston Crab, turns it into a cross face, but then AJ gets to the ropes and survives. AJ ends up picking him up into a fireman's carry, which on a big man like uh, Samoa Joe, that, uh, that visual got a pop out of the crowd. Turns into a powerbomb, 
hits a springboard 450 for a two count. He, they all tease their finishers on each other. Joe hits a huge lariat at one point for a two count. Joe kicks him in the head. AJ comes back and hits the Pele kick. Finally, Joe locks in the Coquina Clutch, his finishing submission maneuver. But AJ rolls through out of the clutch and pins him with, with Joe's shoulders on the mat in 19 minutes. So AJ retains the title. Joe afterwards is very pissed off, yelling at the referee, claiming that AJ tapped, walks in and picks up the title and is talking a whole bunch of crap. AJ you know, kicks him in the head, takes his title back, and then you see on the replay, and you know they, they end up executing this finish well. You see on, the, on one of the angles they show that AJ actually taps out to the clutch as the referee's count hits two. So technically, Samoa Joe should be the WWE champion. This leads to a few more rematches down the road, which Joe always loses. And the greatest crime, or one of the greatest crimes of the 21st century, is that Samoa Joe has never been a world champion in WWE. Quick question. Um, besides, like, AJ, and there's a few other exceptions, have you ever noticed that guys that make have made it somewhere else never really go over in WWE? Like, Shinsuke Nakamura is another guy that I kind of think of as a guy. I think we talked about this before, didn't we? Because we, talk- like, we talked about WCW guys not getting over. I'm referring to, like, Angela, who, who, so are you saying, what, baby faces? Not just baby faces. I'm referring to, like, guys who, ha- have, who have made it, like, New Japan, TNA, or something that's not quite an independent. I mean, I would say that AJ Styles. But is I, AJ's an exception, I would but say. But who else? Daniel Bryan? CM say, Punk? Okay. But yeah, I, but I, I think mean, those guys are exceptions. I mean, they basically, basically made almost the entire boat out of the last 15 years out of guys who have made it somewhere else with exceptions. Like they have had their, their own guys, like, you know, like, like Cena, I guess. And like Roman Brock, but Roman, like uh, Braun, but like Ray. most of the guys working now are guys that came like, like made a name somewhere else and then got signed. And that's not like, you know, everybody, but a lot of guys. I don't know. I just feel like the guys that they signed that were like really because I remember Joe back in the late two thousands uh, on TNA regularly as like one of the top guys there. And you're right; it's a crime that he hasn't been a world champion in WWE because the guy is one of the best guys they have on the roster. But like with him and Shinsuke, Shinsuke was a guy that probably should went over AJ Styles as well back at WrestleMania. Uh, forget which one. I think it was like 2017, 2018. But Shinsuke was a guy that probably should have gone over again. Another guy that doesn't have any world titles right now in WWE. He, yeah, he just won the tag team ch- championship. He had, uh, I think, a US or IC title run. But he's not been the top of the card guy, which he should be, because, I mean, he was such a big thing in New Japan. And he was over with a lot of smart marks here in the U- US, but they never pulled the trigger on him. Well, I, I, I would counter that by saying I agree with you. I think that Shinsuke is like a very glaring example and Samoa Joe is a very glaring example, but I would say that's a universal WWE problem. They have that problem with even their own guys. Yeah. Let alone, like not just the, I guess Braun you know, guys was a victim of this too. Yeah, I was, I was about to mention that Braun who is never wrestled a match outside of WWE in his life. And he got really over and they didn't pull the trigger on him. And we're going to talk about that a little later, but I feel like he's like the perfect counter example to that. It's not, it is a universal WWE problem. I will say like Joe, like 
this match with Joe and Styles, I would say this sets the bar of what I want from a WWE pay-per-view event match or storyline as well. I think when you have peak WWE, especially with today's era, it's got to be part bad reality TV, but really good in-ring stuff. And this, and when I say bad reality TV, it got has to be bad but makes sense. And I think in this storyline, it was a bad sto- bad bad in the fact that you have Samoa Joe trying to steal AJ's family, which I, for me I didn't take it as literal. I thought it was oh, this is just Joe's way of getting inside AJ's head, uh, which is just again still great. Well, Jake Jake said it earlier to us, like in kayfabe. Samoa Joe did literally break into AJ Styles' house. <laughs> <laughs> he said. I'll be your new daddy. I'll be your new daddy. God, so good. Uh, People, oh my God. Like, it, like, they weren't huge on this feud. I loved it. It was so good. It was, it was so Again, entertaining. This, this could have been a Hell in a Cell match, and it would have made so much sense. Yes, absolutely. Bad like, reality TV, great matches. It protects, I, it, it yeah. protects AJ's family from Joe or whatever you want to say. Like, I don't know. Obviously, yeah, I'm wrong I mean, do it. Samoa Joe, it, I mean, there is really... One of the things that is so great about Samoa Joe in WWE is that WWE's writing is terrible. But Samoa Joe is one of the only people who can take this shit and make it sound convincing and make it sound badass. If you imagine like Baron Corbin <laughs> doing, oh, Wendy, I'll be your new daddy. Like, just, I'd be laughing like, my ass off. Harrowing harrowing disastrous stuff but Samoa Joe makes it work because he is so good Samoa Joe is is legit terrifying too like 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 you look at somebody like Roman and he's got like huge jack muscles he's big whatever like fine whatever but like Samoa Joe looks like somebody who could show up in a UFC ring and go toe-to-toe I don't know if he could but he looks like he could he has that kind of tactical thickness that a guy like, <laughs> I like that. that a guy like Keith Lee has. Can we can we trademark that tactical thickness? <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, like he's and also like his quickness. Like he's got that enziguri in his uh, repertoire. The power bomb he hits, which he goes then into a modified Boston Crab, which then goes into an STF, which then goes into a crossface. Great chain submission wrestling right there. Um, Again, he's a guy that can do a lot in the ring, and he cuts great promos too. There's not really a glaring weakness to him, other than the fact that he's seemingly injured every other week. Yeah. Which I hope he comes back from this one because the way he's doing on the mic right now, I hope he's the leader of Retribution because that would be awesome. I think that he would make that great. There is a reason why I said when we first started talking about this match, Samoa Joe to me is one of the really just revolutionary talents in pro wrestling of the last twenty twenty five years. Because before him, I mean, Samoa Joe is not a small man. I mean, he's a 280-pound guy. But And you had seen guys, I mean, people who listen to this podcast will listen to me talk for like at least a half hour about how much I love Vader. There are guys, you have seen big guys who could do like aerial moves and stuff like that. Some things that you wouldn't expect a guy that size to do. Like Bam Bam Bigelow, for instance, would do stuff off the top rope. But... Before Joe, I feel like you didn't see guys that size who wrestled the way that he did, where he could wrestle almost like a cruiserweight type of style, where he was so energetic and he was always moving and was so fast-paced and could also wrestle the power style. I mean, he kind of like cleared the way for dudes like like Jeff Cobb and people like that now. (laughs) And 
doing that while at the same time just having this incredible badass aura and being amazing on the mic and being able to take all this dumb shit that WWE makes him say and make it sound believable and make it sound cool. You know, he is one of the top, top, top guys for me. I love Samoa Joe. And this was a good angle, and I liked it. And I, you know, have fond memories of that entire, like, year. Just me and the boys just going, oh, Wendy, to each other all the time. God, I I still think that was great. And I can't, anyone that didn't like it was wrong. They're all wrong. All the assholes on the internet are stupid. Be less smart, Marks, or get smarter. Damn, Marks. This was a good match, and it was a good angle. And I remember it very fondly. We move on to another uh, angle that I don't remember as fondly. We have a mixed tag team match. Daniel Bryan and his wife, Brie Bella, taking on The Miz and his wife, Maurice. Uh, a battle between like the two reality TV couples of WWE. Uh, D-Bry and Brie, who are on the show Total Bellas, and uh, Miz and Maurice, they have a show. I think it's Miz and Mrs., I think it's called. Correct. On the USA Network, because we need to have more content all the time. Um, so, yeah, I, I've never personally liked mixed tag team matches in the way WWE has them, because they never allow... It just kind of makes for an awkward flow, where it's like a guy tags in the woman, and then like the other woman has to come in. It just... You can't like get a hot tag or anything. It's all kind of awkward. But... The bulk of this match is uh, Brian and Miz carrying it, just having a wrestling match because, you know, they have to kind of set up the quote-unquote hot tag to Brie getting her hands on Maurice. That's like the whole sort of story of the match. So Brian and Miz, they have a match. They wrestle for about 10 minutes. It's fine. Um, Brian puts in the yes lock early. But Maurice breaks it up and then runs away from Brie when she tries to, to, to go after him. Miz gets the heat for a long time, beats up Daniel. Uh, he fights out finally, hits it, but he misses the diving headbutt. Eventually gets beat up some more, but backdrops Miz to the floor. He gets the tag to Brie, so Maurice has to come in. Brie beats up the Miz some more, or she comes in and beats up the Miz. Uh, beats up Maurice, slams her head into the announce table like 20 times. Brian hits a running knee on the outside of the Miz. Crowd's actually decently into this. They're doing the yes chance. Um, finally, Bree hits a Fez press, hits a missile drop kick in the ring on Maurice, but Miz comes in and actually breaks up the pin. Brian goes nuts about the Miz touching his wife, so they're beating each other up. They uh, Bree and Brian do the yes kicks together. Eventually. Bree tries to roll Maurice up with an O'Connor roll, but she ends up reversing it into a cradle pin and grabs the tights, and Maurice pins Bree Bella, and the heels win the match in 13 minutes. This was fine. <laughs> For what it was, it was fine. Yeah, I just, I've never liked mixed tag matches in this sense because, you know, in like the indies and stuff and other promotions now, like intergender wrestling has become a thing. And I'm kind of igno- like, like, I feel like it's been a bit of a controversy because it's like, oh, is this good or not? Yeah. You know, does it like promote domestic violence or whatever, or violence mm-hmm. against women if we have intergender wrestling? And I'm agnostic about that. I think like no one, I mean, like 
if they're not making the women like they're not forcing them to do it, they're doing it of their own accord. And it, like, then I have no issue with it. You know what I mean? They're not actually fighting. It's a wrestling match, you know, but like WWE is very conscious about that. And they never let like the two gen, like the different genders interact in that way. Almost. He said very rarely. So like the mixed tag matches end up just kind of being awkward. Yeah. And like, and you get people like Tessa Blanchard, um, in, in impact wrestling where she's, she's just considered a wrestler. And I, I mean, obviously I'm a dude. So like I, my opinion matters absolutely nothing, but my opinion is that I, I think that's pretty progressive. I think that it's cool that, that she's, that she competes with the guys and they treat her like she's just a, she's, she's a worker. That's what she's there to do. And I, I think that's pretty cool. But, and whenever you see intergender or what do they call mixed tag matches in WWE, like Ronda and Kurt Angle versus Stephanie McMahon and Triple H, and you do get to see it mixing, people pop for it. Like whenever yeah. Rousey, uh, I think she had him in like an ankle lock or like was had Rousey him in put an arm through bar. a table on an episode of Raw. Yeah, like she put Triple H through a table. Like that's, that's badass. You know what I mean? So I, I, I like whenever we get to see spots like that, but I agree with David. Sometimes you get matches like this and it's just kind of plotting and you get a hot tag, but it doesn't really matter because the other person's tagged in too. So I, I get it. I guess I'll add my two cents in here. Um, I think it matters with how you're building the female superstar up. Um, like, for example, Bailey and Sasha probably want to put them in matches against the male talent because it doesn't make a lot of sense. As opposed to like Shayna Baszler, like how she's built uh, built up, Nia Jax as well. Those are two because like ba- ba- Baszler's a MMA fighter, street tough. Like she could punch out probably. What do you think? 85, 90% of the population, if not higher? Well, me, me in like with like half her strength. So I mean, yeah. I, she, I, I wouldn't want to find her in a dark alley. Uh, <laughs> but like, the, it, it, think of the build of the character matters. Like, again, for like Bailey, Sasha, Asuka, um, Tegan Knox, Io Shirai, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for them to be fighting male, male talent. But for like Baszler, she'll probably be doing it on an episode of Raw Underground sooner rather than later. Same thing with Nia Jax. Uh, it, it, it makes sense based on it. And the way they built up Tessa on TNA made sense for her to be fighting for the world title. Yeah. Uh, China. And, and girl, China. And I mean, the thing with Tessa was like, she was like legitimately probably the best overall worker, male or female in the company. Yeah. And she was obviously so good that it was like, you know, it makes sense to put her in there. You know what yeah, I mean? And like, She's and- going to be, she is a, probably a better worker on her own merit than anybody there. And they and they're just like yeah, like she's competing for it. She, yeah, she's gonna wrestle for the Impact Championship, and it's just like yeah, that makes absolute sense. Yeah. Last thing I have in this match, I do enjoy Miz as a shit eating heel. Um, <laughs> that I feel like he's in his prime then, but doing the yes kick and getting nose. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing really like noticeable about this match. It was a match that you could probably see on SmackDown. Uh, I like the people involved, but overall on this card, it's just like eh. Yeah, it's just, yeah. just another match. Should have been pre-show is what I said with the tag yeah. match taking its spot. Speaking of female wrestlers who could be built up to uh, face the men, we have in our co-main event, WWE Raw Women's Championship, Rowdy Ronda Rousey, defending her title against Alexa Bliss. And, you know, it was such a big deal at the time. It got a lot of mainstream pub and objectively was good. I liked it. But it's kind of weird how, like, I feel like nobody ever talks about Ronda Rousey 
being in WWE anymore. She was really good. I'm going to say it. She, she was, was good. I mean, I thought Ronda was like as just natural of a wrestler. Hundo was P. like so good, so quick as almost anybody. It might have to do with her slandering the fans after she didn't resign. I don't know. I don't know what it was, but it's just kind of like she was here and then she was gone. And then it was like, all right, well, that's it, over with. We'll kind of never talk about it again. It is a shame because she, well, again, said. Did she slander the fans? She said that they never appreciated the work that she put in. So I'm, I'm like, not, I remember that being deal, a story. She? It was, she, I mean, she was a heel at the end. She was sort of like a. They tried to make her sort of like a smiling baby face at the beginning. She was yeah, like that famous not, and popular. No. And that was not like, if you watched her in the UFC, like that did not fit her. That was all. not her. She like, showed up. She kicked ass. She went home. Yeah. She was like an arm breaking badass chick. <laughs> and then she ends up opposing Becky and Becky by the, by late 2018 was insanely Nuclear. over. And so, like, they sort of had to turn Ron to heel, and it was a lot better from that point on. And she was always a good worker. I mean, like, she was basically super impressive in the ring from the very, very beginning. She is such a great athlete, and she just kind of got it immediately. But she is in the ring with Alexa Bliss. Who is not. <laughs> uh, but so Alexa comes out with uh, her backup, Mickey James and Alicia Fox. Rousey comes out with her, her good friend and her training partner, Natalia. Ronda gets a big pop, big reaction. And they start this match. Ronda, really, really impressive as a wrestler. Again, like, this was, I don't know how many singles matches she had had by this point, but it's, like, less than 10 in her career. And she is already better than, like, at this point, than, like, like already better than, like, most wrestlers will ever get to by this point in her career, like this quick. She's just such a natural. Does some really impressive mat wrestling and suplexes early on, teases the arm bar. Really is a fortuitous thing for Ronda that she basically had developed her finisher when she was in the UFC. She had a finishing move, which almost nobody ever does. But she was able to just bring a finishing move into the U- into pro wrestling. Um, teases the arm bar a bunch of times, and then Alexa ends up taking over um, with the help of Mickey and Alicia, she goes after the ribs and goes after the midsection and works them over. And a lot of this move is Ronda just selling, or a lot of this match is Ronda just selling and selling and selling, trying to hit power moves, but she can't because her ribs are hurting too much. Um, and they just do this for a while. Alexa just beats on her. Mickey and Alicia continue to get involved. So Natalia comes in, she suplexes Alicia on the floor. And Ronda takes out Mickey James. They do a, a double cross body spot where they both go down. And Alexa comes up first. She's talking a ton of shit. And then Ronda gets mad. And then Alexa gets all scared. And Ronda just then gets pissed, hits a bunch of moves, hits a gut wrench power bomb, does a cool judo throw, Samoan drop, puts her in the arm bar. And Alexa taps out in 11 minutes, 58 seconds to and Ronda. Ronda retains the WWE Raw Women's Championship. I remember watching this match at the time, and I loved it. And I, I, I don't think this is a match that people would go back and be like, man, that was great. I loved it. But I thought the story made so much sense with Ronda selling her. She, she had, had been attacked and her ribs were hurt. Um, because otherwise, how could Bliss keep up with this you know, MMA badass? 
But I think selling the ribs, Rousey targeting them, I think it made total sense. It made Rousey look kind of vulnerable, but then once she got mad enough, she was just like, nah, F this, I'm going to rip her arm off. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed it, and I think that it kind of encapsulates why Rousey was so good in her run. She could do whatever. She could. She wrestled with like Nia Jax and got good, ja- good matches out of her, um, could wrestle Bliss and get a good match out of her. I, I think it was... You know, I think it's very undersold what she did in that year, year and a half she was in. Yeah, I thought it was absolutely stunning how good Ronda was and how much she just got it, how quickly. Like, especially, like, selling. Like, mm-hmm. that's not, like, something you're, like, uh, like Angela talks about, like, facial expressions. Rousey, like, when she's being, like, put into holds, is showing, like, real pain and emotion. And she's doing it convincingly, which I, I think is probably a minute art that it's, you don't learn in your first six months of wrestling. It's on the verge of being too much selling, but she has it at the yeah yeah. But she has it at the right spot. And that was something that really helps they like make these matches feel real. And the fact that you have Rousey, someone who's a legitimate badass who has won fight after fight after fight in the UFC, coming to WWE and then doing good matches that have good storytelling in the match, something you don't see in, like, the UFC, like, selling injuries. That's not something you always look at for, like, obviously a, USF, a UFC fight. But when you come from UFC to watch WWE and see these matches, you kind of have the understanding of this is a story that they're telling, not reality. And as far as the story goes with Ronda Rousey, she does a great job at making that story go with her injuries and selling either well when she was facing Nia Jax. Well, Nia Jax is this giant mammoth of a woman. How am I going to chop her down? Versus Alexa Bliss, who is smaller than her. Well, I have injured ribs. How am I going to overcome this? Um, I do think you kind of, at the end there, hulking out with Rousey is, uh, it can lead to dangerous situations, how you kind of get heat turned on you from the fans. And you see that towards the end of her run uh, in the WWE. Uh, Bliss, though, again, someone else that I think does a great story and one of the better workers in the in WWE right now. I'm very interested to see what she's doing right now with like the uh, the Fiend and Braun Strowman and that entire angle. I love Alexa. She's great. Um, and so this match as a whole, very good, great story. I think this had a good build. Um, it is a shame that Rousey is no longer in the WWE. Because I think she could go to Raw Underground and do some great things, or even Ooh. still be on the main card and do some great things. Bliss one time after Elimination Chamber, the the I think it was the first Women's Elimination Chamber, she won, mm-hmm. and she starts to give this all this teary eyed promo. She was like, "I just I did this for all of the girls out there that watch and, and idolize us, and and I just want to say to to all of the fans out there, you will never be as good as me." Yeah. Oh man, I popped so hard when she pulled. I'd like to take this moment to apologize to absolutely fucking nobody. (laughs) One of my favorite post post fight promos ever. But here's the Uh, thing: like another thing with Rousey, I know is too is like essentially the female version of Brock Lesnar, if you want to make that comparison. But the way they told her stories versus what they do with Brock is just leagues and bounds better because they let her have a real match instead of just finisher spam. I think Brock (laughs) Brock could do that. Brock could easily do that. We know Brock, Brock put could on do great that. matches, but they oh they just book it as finishers, fam. Uh. Yeah. Speaking of, yeah. Speaking of, I do want to just take a moment and remember some great Brock Lesnar matches that were not finisher spam. Brock versus uh, Daniel Bryan, AJ Summer Styles, Slam, or Summer, yeah. Brock versus AJ Styles. Oh, mwah. chef's kiss. Brock versus Eddie Guerrero. Ooh, ooh. Brock Undertaker in Hell in a Cell. That was yes. like a three five minute match. Oh, God. 
Well, that was the, that was our that was our moment of remembering uh, good Brock matches. This is a uh, a a bad moment. This match isn't bad, but it's a bad moment that involves Brock Lesnar. Main events: Hell in a Cell match for the WWE Universal Championship. It is Roman Reigns defending the title against the Monster Among Men, Braun Strowman, Mick Foley. The icon of the Hell in a Cell is the special guest referee, and he comes out wearing just a uh, little bit too baggy uh, uh, white button-down shirt that he appears to have spray-painted black stripes onto. Uh, it's because he's very much like that. very much on brand for Mick. I think it's a great look. Um, so this is 2018, Braun. At this point, he is not as over as he used to be. He got super, super hot feuding with Roman in 2017 when everyone was tired of Roman being the champ. Everyone was tired of the Roman push. Braun shows up and just starts beating up Roman every show and like just doing comically violent stuff to him, like like putting him in a car and like flipping it over and like running him over with an ambulance and just crazy stuff and like beating him up and beating him up some more. And the fans loved it. I mean, the people were crazy for Braun and they were building up to a big match for the universal title, but then Braun got injured. So we never really got that big payoff. And then Braun ends up feuding with Brock Lesnar, who in the meantime had won the title Lost a bunch of times to Brock Lesnar, and it kind of cooled him off completely. But this is sort of the Braun Roman big pay-per-view main event that we were feel like we were supposed to get a year before. But by this point, Braun, again, not quite as over because of shitty booking. Uh, Roman comes out, and they have piped in on the WWE Network version of this. They have piped in cheers for Roman, when at the time... He was definitely getting booed by everybody. And if you go back and read about stuff at the time, like read stuff at the time about this match, they all mention Roman universally getting booed. The WWE getting you know, their revisionist history in. They've piped in all these cheers for the big, beautiful, baby-faced Roman Reigns that we all love. So they start by just going after each other, punching each other, throwing each other into the cell. Weapon spots early on. Braun hits a choke slam onto the apron. Roman hits him with a kendo stick so many times that he breaks it over Braun's back. Um, he hits a Superman punch. Braun doesn't go down. He goes for another Superman punch, but Braun catches him and hits a choke slam out of midair. There is a two count. It's a very close two count. Mick's uh, hand actually hit the mat for the third time, but Roman kicked out. That was bad. Uh, <laughs> it was not great. Mick, by the way, has got this sort of like, he looks curly weird. Haired, curly hair Jufro going on. He looks like Bob Ross. Um, it's very distracting. Bob Ross three years after meth. Yes. Roman comes back, hits a pop-up Superman punch where he got way up in the air for it. Actually looked pretty cool. Braun ends up taking the advantage back again. Remember when I mentioned in the first Hell in a Cell match, when I was talking about there are certain kickouts that happen in a match where you realize that there is no way a certain guy is going to win. So Braun picks up the steel steps and just starts beating the hell out of Roman with the steel steps. 
hits him with the he- hits him in the head, hits him in the chest. Finally, after hitting him in like various parts of Roman's body with the steel steps, he picks him up and hits his finishing move, the running power slam, and Roman kicks out. And if you're not going to pin the guy after hitting him with the steel steps 120 times and then hitting your finisher, I'm sorry, buddy. You're not winning this match. You're not going over. I'm sorry, dude. Uh, Roman comes back, Superman punch. He spears Braun through a table. And this is where it goes off the rails. Dolph Ziggler and Drew McIntyre, who I guess are aligned with Braun because they're heels. The dogs of war. The dogs of war. They come out, and they're trying to get into the ring and, you know, get through the cage door and, and help out Braun. So the other two S.H.I.E.L.D. guys, Dolph Zig- uh, or, or Dean Ambrose and Seth Rollins, they come out. And they all start brawling on the outside. And then Dolph and Seth, they climb to the top of the cell for some reason. I don't know why you would do this. I mean, I, I'm trying to, like, get into their heads. Why would you want to climb on top of the cage? They, they do it. Um, they brawl on top of the cage. Drew joins them, and they're beating up Seth. And then finally, Dean, who has strapped a kendo stick to his back like a samurai blade. I am playing Ghost of Tsushima right now, and I think it's sweet. He has, uh, you know, he's, you know, this, this kendo stick katana at his side. He climbs up to the top, and they are beating the hell out of each other. And the fans, you know, the fans are loving this. The fans are really going crazy because it is a cool visual to see everyone fight on top of the cage. And, you know, there is the sense of impending doom that something's about to happen. And it does. Uh, Seth and Dolph climb down the cell and they're hitting each other as they're climbing down the cell. They're still like two thirds of the way up the cell. So probably a good, you know, 10, 15 feet. And they end up both falling off at the same time. They crash through the announce tables. Fans love it. Holy shit. It's, you know, cool, big spot. Meanwhile, in the ring, Roman and Braun have not moved for like 10 minutes. They're both dead. They have been dead for like 10 full minutes by this point. As as the fans watch this whole brawl going on. All of a sudden, Brock Lesnar's here. Brock Lesnar is here. Brock Lesnar is here. (laughs) Brock Lesnar's here. And he's with Paul Heyman. Let me remind you, this is uh, Braun's Money in the Bank cash-in. I didn't, I didn't mention that at the top, but Brock Lesnar shows up for some reason. And he kicks in the door of the cell. Mick Foley comes out to confront Paul Heyman. And Paul Heyman pepper sprays Mick Foley. <laughs> he just, just fucking pepper sprays the guy. Brock gets in the ring. Braun and Roman are still dead. He picks up Braun, hits the F5. He picks up Roman, hits the F5. And that's the end of the match and the end of the show. It is just a, a no contest. And Brock has just kind of shown up, beaten everybody. And they're like, well, all right, I guess the match is over. Let's go home, folks. Bye-bye. Have a wonderful time. There was, there was one really cool spot, though. And it's whenever Lesnar kicked in the door and then walked up the cell door into the uh, ring. That, that was, was pretty cool. Really cool. Yeah, <laughs> but that's it. That's where it's. That, that that's pretty much where it ends. The notes I have for the last eight minutes of this match is just what sort of backwards pageantry is this? This is just because <laughs> you have because you have Roman spearing uh, Braun through the table for the two count, 
And then they are literally on the ground, like, rolling over each other for six minutes. While you have Dean, Seth, Drew, and Dolph fight on the outside of the cage, climb up the cage, fight on top of the cage, bring back falling through the cage spots. That's what we should be bringing back. Uh, But, oh my god. Now, as far as the first part of this match, I thought it was okay. I think the story that they're telling is like two heavyweights really going at it. Um, Also, screw you, Corey Graves, for saying the score will finally be settled. Because watching them that back and having that very stark irony found on you at the end of this match when Brock Lesnar ends it, uh, I thought that like again this really should have been I felt like this should have been Braun's moment throughout this entire match the way it was going it just felt like it should have culminated with Braun winning the title going over as is no nonsense going to murder you heel and of course that doesn't happen because WWE has Brock Lesnar in their back pocket I just want to. My biggest issue with Brock is not with Brock itself. It's how WWE writers use Brock. Because him coming in here and ending the match, I don't think that there isn't a place for it, but there's a better place for it. Because this just, as a pay-per-view send-off, is terrible. But Brock, How can a Hell in a Cell match end in a no contest? It's a Hell in a Cell match! Two years in a row. They, man, they want to do that They want to do that again, they, right? We would never do that a second time, right? <laughs> Now with a similar yeah. unbeatable character and one of the top guys on the card who might be getting booed at this point. Yeah, they would never. Um, I can't wait for this year's. Can't oh wait. God. Oh yeah. So I, I was talking to David before we started recording, and David got mad at me because I talked about how I actually thought that it was a really good match between Braun and Roman up until that point because it was just two big guys beating the hell out of each other again. And I, I had a hot take that I think Roman's best matches have, as a whole, have come against Braun Strowman. Yeah, and David you. David disagrees and says I'm wrong, but I've never been wrong in my life, so I'm not going to start now. I'm just going to get some popcorn um, for this one. What's that? I'm just going to get some popcorn for this one and watch you no, continue David, at it. I'm not even, even going to let David argue. Um, <laughs> uh, the, honestly... Looking back at my notes, I really didn't say much about the match, uh, but I do want to find something that makes me as happy as Michael Cole saying, the big dog. I just, I need that in my life. Big dog eats my ass. <laughs> <laughs> David sent that in the group the other day, no contact, and it, or maybe it was Ann, one of you, and it was a lot of fun. I couldn't stop, totally I could, I could stop laughing at that. That was just hysterical. Yeah. I just recommend anybody who doesn't recognize that reference, just Google or go put into YouTube, big dog eats my ass. It's not, it's not, you know, it, it is not a sexual thing. Nope. It will make you laugh. It's not a risky search. Okay. It'll be okay. It is, it, it, it is not NSFW. It is clean for work. Um, the story of this match made sense, but you, we've been teased with Brock so many, or Braun so many times. If you watched uh, SummerSlam, you saw Roman and Bron- Brock fight again, okay? And Braun was like, I'm going to stand next to the ring the whole time. And it basically ended with, like, Braun getting speared or F5, one or the other, and basically gets, like, put out of the match, and then he can't cash in. And everybody goes home mad because they thought they were going to get the Braun cash in. And then he tries to cash in on Raw after Roman's match against Finn Balor, and then that's when the Shield reunites, and... <sighs> That's yeah. that's I think that's why I didn't like the shield coming back is yeah. because it was just 
done as a ploy to stall the Braun title opportunity. Yep. Bride the Shield reunited for evil purposes. But they were faces. Yeah. Now, they, they should have pulled the trigger on Braun in 2017 when they got him over. The crowd went crazy when Braun came out in 2017. And they just beat him too many times. And, you know, especially when the whole thing, your whole gimmick is that you're an unbeatable monster. When you get beat, it kind of ruins the whole thing. You know? It happened with Goldberg. It just kind of it, it damages you pretty big time when you lose. And it happened to Braun. And it's like just a textbook case of booking malpractice from WWE. 50, yeah. 50, 50 booking, baby. Woo, don't you love it? I, I would call it 50-50. I, I, I don't even know if I would call it 50-50 booking. I don't think Braun got his 50. Yeah, no. Because Braun, <laughs> Braun never got his, his 50% of the wins that they give out. Yeah. I mean, he's he is now the WWE champion, and that's, you know, I'm glad for him. But, you know, it's it's only because the Goldberg-Roman match didn't happen at Mania because of COVID. So, I mean, <laughs> he never would have gone over in this way. So, you know, he he's the champ. There's no momentum. They didn't do it when they had momentum. WWE booking, man. But, yeah, I mean, for me, this is a match that it's fine. I mean, it is a, a Hell in a Cell match between two big boys doing big boy stuff and doing weapons. And, you know, it, it's, it's compelling enough in its way. But then you get the ending, the Brock thing. I just remember that very distinctly pissing me off and pissing everybody else off because they had done Roman Brock for so long. <laughs> and they had done it so many times. And it was like, please, can I watch anything else? But no, we got more Roman versus Brock. It's like Seth Dolph. But except Seth and Dolph can theoretically have really good matches. I don't know. You know that a Roman Brock match is going to be finisher spam. Fair. It's just going to be finisher spam for like three minutes, and then you're going to be left unsatisfied. Okay, so we're going to move on to our two and a half marks for this show, Hell in a Cell 2018. Angelo, you want to start us off? Sure thing. So, I mean, there's a lot of met on this card, so this is kind of straightforward for me. Half mark is going to Dean Ambrose because – I'm not not gonna not acknowledge Dean Ambrose because this is a start of his last bit of time in WWE before moving on to greener pastures, becoming John Moxley, having a killer New Japan run, and is now doing awesome in AEW. Uh, Angelo is gonna be one of those dudes like, yeah, I loved that. Uh, I loved when like uh, John Moxley and Tyler Black had that match. <laughs> uh, like Kevin Kevin Steen and El Generico were also on that card. <laughs> Just stop referring to their WWE names yeah. entirely. Yep. I could say it. I would do it. Uh, my one mark is going to go to the entire women's division that is featured on this card. I thought both their matches, Becky uh, versus Charlotte and then Rousey versus Bliss, both were great stories that they told. Both had great reactions from the crowd. Um, I think in both cases, the right person won. So you can continue the story there. And again, overall, the stories. The stories, the moves, how the ring worked, it, everything about them were very solid matches. And probably the two two of the three best matches on this card, and I will say the best match, and the guy I'm giving two marks to, is Samoa Joe. Because 
First of all, oh, Wendy, will I will never forget that. That will never not be funny. Uh, I'll be your new daddy. Great line. The storybook that he's reading before the match. Perfect. It's so cheesy that it's awesome. Uh, and then the story that the, he tells with AJ Styles in the ring, I, I again, it hit all the buttons. I loved it. Probably my favorite match on the card. Probably the barometer that you should measure matches by is like, is it better than this Joe Styles match or is it worse? Now you could have a good worse match, but not many good worse matches. This is like the barometer that everything should be measured against because I thought it was the perfect combination of bad reality TV with the storyline, but great in-ring action with the two competitors. David, you know what that reminds me of? And this is super uh, like niche. For all of our wrestling fans that are also Survivor fans, uh, what isn't there the Ashley test? What the Ashley test? Yeah, yeah it's the Ashley. Uh, I mean, maybe it's not Ashley. I don't know. There's a, a girl on Survivor Palau, and it's like the the test is like, are they more or less memorable than that person? Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I don't remember who it even is, but I know <laughs> yeah. what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but oh, that, God. that's what you just reminded me of. Um, well, since I'm talking, I'll go next. Um, all right, I've got a, a negative half mark to give out, and it's going to the red cell. We've already talked about it, but this is just WWE's attempt to be super modern and edgy, and it is terrible, and I hate it, and it's not good. It looks ugly. You're not being edgy. You're not being cool. You're just pissing off all of the every fan that's older than 12. Then let's add and- the red lights to it. Uh, I hope we get that paper at some point because that that show made me more mad than this show. Um, But that's all I got to say. I've already talked about that enough. I'm giving one mark to Jeff Hardy's primary care physician um, because that man has put in a lot of work to this point in his life and he's going to have to put in a lot more work before something happens to Jeff Hardy because the man just tries to kill himself every time. Like like Shane Shane McMahon tries to kill himself a lot, but Shane also leaves a lot. Jeff's just been trying to hurt himself for 25, 20, 23 years, I think, or something like that to this point. Just not good. What's up, yeah, David? And the insane thing about it is like, you know, Jeff was just recently injured this past year or so. He was out for a while, but it was like the first significant injury of Jeff Hardy's yeah. career that like kept him out for like more than a couple weeks, which is yeah. absurd. Um, and then my final two marks, it's going to go to long-term storytelling, even when it sucks. Every match on this card had been going for a while, uh, the storyline behind it. I mean, even if you don't like the Braun and Roman and Brock stuff, they at least were telling a consistent story about Brock doing whatever, you know, what, fighting at all costs, um, Braun not being able to get the title, Roman being unstoppable. The whole Rousey one-and-a-half-year storyline was all continuous. Miz and Brian, that went back to, like, talking smack in, like, 2017. uh, Or maybe even farther back than that. That had been going on. Uh, Seth and Dean reunion. Becky and Charlotte. uh, Except for Jeff Hardy and Randy Orton. That didn't really count. But everything on here, the storyline were all making sense. Even if we didn't like the product from this show, everything made sense. They were telling pretty coherent stories about all of the matches so even whenever it sucks i appreciate the effort at long-term storytelling that wwe was trying to pull off at this time fair sure my half mark goes to the falcon arrow baby (laughs) nobody 
kicks out of the Falcon Arrow. And, and like, like dead ass, love the move. Think it's really cool. Hardcore Holly, it was his finisher. Hardcore Holly, just you got to love the guy. And, you know, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I think the Falcon Arrow is a cool move. Um, and Seth hitting the superplex into the Falcon Arrow pops me every time. I just think it is a great combination. And it's just a, a, a small thing I want to highlight that, that makes wrestling a little bit better for me. Mm. Uh, my one mark is going to go to same match, Drew McIntyre. I, I, I kind of expounded a little bit about how good I think Drew has been in his second run in WWE, really since he started in NXT. But I don't know if there is a more complete guy right now in American pro wrestling than Drew McIntyre, a guy who just hits every single box. And he looked great in this match. He looks great in every match. The guy is huge. He can move. He's a great worker. He's got a great presence. He's got a great look. Ticks every box. And I thought he was a standout guy. In my favorite match on the card, and one of my favorite matches that we have watched since we started doing this podcast. And lastly, I'm going to pull a Jake. I'm going to go minus two marks to WWE booking. Not just, <laughs> and, and not for the reason that you might think, because, you know, obviously I was ranting about the finish of the Braun Roman match, which is just classic, just dumb WWE booking not actually putting anyone new over spinning your wheels with the same dumb shit all the time forever. My booking actually, my, my complaint actually has to do with the Becky and Ronda matches. They were good matches, but it was tough for me to enjoy them as much knowing where they led because where it ends up leading is eventually down the road to the Becky Ronda feud and the triple threat match at Mania. First ever women's headlining, first ever women's match to headline WrestleMania. Itself a good storyline, itself a good match. But that match has always been ruined for me for the finish because I hate the finish to that so much. Where they did like a dumb, they, Becky was always going to go over. But Becky doesn't go over clean. She has to go over with a weird roll-up where Ronda's shoulder was up because they did not believe that it would be believable for Becky to tap out Ronda Rousey or beat her clean. Because Ronda is such a great UFC fighter and she's such a real MMA badass. And I just detest that thinking so much. It is so asinine to me. It is pro wrestling. We know it's not real. You don't need to tell me, oh, hey, this person is real, but this person isn't. It's, you know, it's like, who are you? Antonio Inoki? Shut up, dude. And it just, it, it, it spoiled, like, watching back, like, this, this era of Becky and this era of Ronda Rousey, because I know where it goes, and I know in the end it pisses me off. So that is, I, I'm just handing a, 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 a negative two marks to that just because like it grinds my gears, man. It still grinds my gears. Defendable. So 
we have come to our last order of business. Once again, as we do every week, we're hitting the randomizer and seeing what we're going to review next week. Boys, as I pull it up, what are you guys hoping to see? I want late 90s WCW, baby. We were talking Goldberg, uh, Diamond Dallas Page. I mean, I think I need a Hogan match. Ooh, I, would, I wouldn't mind Hogan. I will say, real quick, uh, again, follow us on Twitter at two and a half marks. Uh, links go up there all the time. Also, want to give a quick shout to our international listeners. We have a couple of listeners from Ireland. Uh, we got a couple of listeners in Canada, El Salvador, Brazil. Uh, and if I haven't named your country, there's a lot of you. Um, if you if you are one of those, please follow me at jlong290 on Twitter or Instagram, and just reach out to me because I would love to know about it and who you are. Yeah. Uh, pre- Why are you listening to our podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, 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 what drew you to us? What can we do to make us more reach more people? I know, I know one of the guys in Ireland. His name is uh, Fergal Devitt. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Fergal the, Devitt guy. Yeah, they, I, he was in the Bull Club at one point. Uh, good personal friend of mine. <laughs> but okay, so Jake, you wanted something like what, like late period WCW, right? Yeah. Andrew's hoping for some Hogan. You guys are both going to be disappointed. Uh, well, Jake, you might not in a sense. Okay. We are headed to the invasion angle. Oh, oh yeah. boy. Is it, is it the invasion pay-per-view? WWE No Mercy 2001 from St. Louis, Missouri. Main event, a triple threat match for the WWF title. Stone Cold Steve Austin, Kurt Angle, and Rob Van Dam. We've got Chris Jericho and The Rock for the WCW title. We've got Undertaker versus Booker T. We've got some. We've got some yeah. uh, invade. Like we're, we get to have to go deep into the absolute all-time just leaving money on the table events in the history of wrestling. The invasion. So that's remember what that I got time, Remember that time that Stone Cold sided with WCW? Yeah. Oh man. I mean, like this is this is when Stone Cold is in the alliance. Like yeah. he's in the alliance by this point. So like we're gonna get into this. Uh, you know, again, we're gonna have to dig deep into the invasion. Yeah. There is a lot there, and I'm excited to talk about it because I just love talking about this period of wrestling and just all the bizarre stuff that happened. But yeah, so that is what you got to look forward to next week on the Two and a Half Marks podcast, No Mercy 2001. So until next time, for Jake Long and Angelo Inglisa, I have been David Statman. And once again, thanks for listening. Daddy was coming home. It looks like he's not, but I'll be your new daddy.